Hello, I'm Ken, and this is Teach Medieval. today's episode, I am immensely excited indeed to be welcoming Associate Professor Nicholas Morton. Hello, Nick. Hi, Ken. It's nice to be here. Thank you. It's nice to have you. Nicholas is Associate Professor of History at Nottingham Trent University, the co-editor of the Rulers of the Latin East book series and the author of several superb texts, including The Field of Blood, The Battle of Aleppo and The Remaking of the Medieval East, Encountering Islam on the First Crusade, a book which has proved invaluable to me in my teaching and, very excitingly, The Mongol Storm. Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval East, which has just come out. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Nick? I believe you're also in the process of launching a very exciting project online. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I'm just starting to put together various videos for a YouTube channel, which I think might be of interest to students studying on the history of the Crusades. The first batch of videos is designed to be a sort of setting the scene group of videos. So if you want to sort of find your bearings in the Medieval Near East, we've got a video looking at geography and climate another looking at commercial trade routes, another at the strategic layout of the region, and then finally one looking at the demography of the region. So it's helping people to find their bearings in the region. Fantastic. So another set of resources out there. Um, I'd encourage all of us, uh, I have already, to get over to YouTube and subscribe. So before we begin, I just want to make it clear that this particular podcast is actually the first in a mini-series of three on the broader topic of Urban II and his calling of the First Crusade. The purpose of the full series of three podcasts is to analyse and evaluate the three main motivations Urban may have had for calling his crusade at Clermont in November 1095. Namely, one, the appeal he had received from Alexos I Komnenos detailing the situation in the East. Two, any political ambitions he may have been harbouring for himself and for the papacy more broadly. And three, a deep-seated religious conviction that may have convinced him that launching his crusade was simply the right thing to do. So please make sure you listen to the other two episodes in this series in order to complete the full picture and complete your learning. So now that we've got that bit out of the way, Nick, let's begin, shall we? Absolutely. Right, so Nick, the topic for this first episode is the appeal from Alexios I Komnenos, who was, of course, the Byzantine Emperor uh, in 1095, having come to power in a coup in 1081. Uh, but before we get into how that appeal may have inspired Urban to call his crusade, why don't we just take a second to get to know Urban first. Uh, who was Urban II? Uh, what do we know of his background, and how and when had he become Pope? Okay, so Urban II, um, that's his, his name as Pope. His the name he had at birth was Odo of Châtillon. He's, he was born around 1035. Um, he's, he was the son of a French aristocratic family. He rose up within the church, being a member of the Cluniac monastic order, which was an extremely important and widespread order at this time. 
He rose to prominence under the Pope Gregory VII, and that's a point that warrants attention because mm-hmm. Gregory really was a Pope who pushed the reform agenda mm-hmm. very assertively in Western Christendom. And so Urban was someone who worked very closely with Gregory and in many ways reflects Gregory's priorities and ideas in the way he conducted himself later as Pope. So he became Pope in 1088, and Urban's t- pontificate was always rather troubled because there was an anti-pope set up by the emperor called Clement III. So there was always a question mark placed over how survivable Urban would be. But I think we're going to talk about that in a bit more detail later on. Yes, yes, we are. So when this appeal from Alexios the uh, First Komnenos arrives, uh, where is Urban uh, and what is he doing? At this point, Urban is at the Council of Piacenza in northern Italy. It's a very difficult time for Urban indeed. He has plenty of people who want to try and depose him. He's, on, he's got a heavy guard the whole time, so it's a difficult time for him. But it has to be said also that whilst Alexius um, did send or does seem to have sent emissaries to Urban at Piacenza, there were there have been other lines of communication between the Pope and Emperor in previous years, and they may well have included other appeals. I'm, I'm, my suspicion is that the appeal at Piacenza is just one example among many, just the one we happen to know most about. Ah, okay. In fact, that relationship between Alexios and Urban is another thing we'll come back to. Okay, so now we know the man and we know the context, let's consider whether this appeal may indeed have been the main reason why Urban called the First Crusade. We're going to divide this conversation into two halves, Nick. Uh, Firstly, I'd like to discuss the evidence one might put forward if you were going to argue that Alexios's appeal really was the main reason Urban called his crusade. And then, once that's done, we'll turn the tables and we'll ask ourselves whether there are any reasons to question the importance of this cause. Okay? Okay, so if we rehearse the arguments for why Alexius's appeal might have appealed to Urban, there's a number of factors we can draw upon. Now, as with so many things, we know so little about Urban II, the person, it's difficult to know which thought would be uppermost in his mind, but there are several interests that would obviously align to supporting Alexius's appeal. For my money, number one is the whole issue of church relations, that this was a difficult time for relations between the papacy and the Byzantine church. Back in 1054, a papal legate and the Byzantine Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated one another, and this has been described as the start of the Great Schism. Now, in fact, it wasn't quite as final as that. Relations between Byzantium and the papacy, yes, there was clearly some healing that had to take place if things were going to get back to a full-bodied relationship again. But nonetheless, there is plenty of goodwill. There's still plenty of desire on both sides to heal the rift. And I think Urban would have been very alive to the fact that supporting Alexius would have been seen as a positive gesture by the Byzantine authorities, one which could have helped to heal relations between the two churches. And this was certainly a big priority for Urban in his pontificate. Mm -hmm. Another possible reason why Alexius's appeal should be taken seriously is that it's not the first time the Byzantines had asked for help. The Byzantines had asked for help in various ways, shapes and forms, not just against the Turkmen groups moving into Anatolia, or indeed the Seljuks, but also against the Pechenegs crossing the Danube, threatening Byzantium's northern borders. And so the idea that Byzantium should ask for troops is actually quite common in this era. So it's entirely reasonable to believe Alexius was asking for help, and it's entirely plausible 
possible that the papacy would have wanted to offer help. By this stage, it's not clear whether the Anatolian Turkmen were on the advance, but certainly they had taken a great deal of Anatolia by this stage, and it's not surprising that Byzantine either wanted to um, secure forces, whether to defend themselves or to try and retake what they had lost. And so there are various clear uh, incentives for Urban to take Alexius's appeal seriously. Yes. Another one is perhaps international recognition. Urban is not well placed at the time of the Council of Piacenza. He has this anti-pope. He's got plenty of enemies. This kind of strong relationship acting very much as a representative or the representative, one might say, of Christendom wouldn't have done any harm for shoring up his support at home as well. Yeah. And so a very, and yeah, a very positive relationship with the Eastern Emperor and playing a very obvious role in uniting Eastern and Western Christendom would have been very prestigious for him. It would have helped. But I, I do think that at the time when Urban launched the crusade, he wants to see the relationship graph point upwards, not downwards. Yeah. And that, that positive disposition that Urban has towards the East isn't just to the emperor, it's to the broader Christian family of the East, isn't it? You, you mentioned there about the, the territorial losses uh, in Anatolia, what had been happening, uh, what the Seljuks had been uh, inflicting perhaps on, pon- on some of the Christian communities there. Is that going to be a, is that a motivating factor, I think, there as well for Urban? It could well have been. It's difficult to say, but again, there's there's various nuances here. So about 70 years before the first crusade, Byzantium was looking very strong and it controlled much of, well, pretty much all of Anatolia as well as part of the Caucasus as well. But then as we sort of move towards the mid-11th century, increasingly Turkmen groups forming part of the broader series of invasions and population movements that was the establishment of the Seljuk Sultanate across much of the Near East. These Turkmen groups begin to invade and raid into Anatolia. The Seljuk Sultan shows occasional interest in that process, but really it's the Turkmen groups who are driving it. Yeah. Until event by the 1080s, they've got control over Nicaea, which is only a few miles from Constantinople. And among the leading dynasties in Anatolia, you have the rise of someone called Suleiman, mm-hmm. who will then go on to establish what will become the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate. So a great deal of territory has been lost to the Byzantine Empire. Yeah. But you raise a very important question, which is one that many historians have offered an opinion on, which is how much suffering did this involve for the Christian communities or indeed all the communities of Anatolia at this time? Mm -hmm. And therefore, when Pope Urban II launched the crusade, and according to many of the accounts of the sermon he gave, those accounts include many sort of lurid descriptions of atrocities. Yep. Is there a basis for this? And I'm afraid I'm going to give a classic academic answer to this, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is there's a mix of factors. Yes, It has to be said that Anatolia, or parts of Anatolia, for decades were essentially a war zone. Yep. There are some claims of deliberate persecution, and I don't want to minimise them because those claims are made by people who are living in the midst of those events. But I have to say that my instinct is that much of the loss of life, the population displacement... The, the broader chaos of the era owes more to it being a war zone, essentially, yeah. where it is not easy to do things like plant your crops, look after them until you can harvest them. The basic rhythms of daily life are disrupted, so are trade routes. Many cities get besieged. So in and amongst that, I don't doubt there is a lot of suffering. Was that suffering inflicted as an intentional persecution? It's hard to say. Yeah. In some cases, yes, but those may be isolated cases rather than the rule. It also has to be said that there are some regions across Anatolia at this time 
which were relatively lightly touched. So there are regional variations in the impact of the Turkmen advance. Yes. And so I, having thoroughly sort of mixed up various factors here, which I think probably reflects what would have been a very confused geographical environment. My answer is, it has to be said, it's a mixture. Right, so there we go. That's the case in favour of the argument that Alexios's appeal really was the main reason that Urban II called the First Crusade in 1095. As Nicker so effectively laid out for us, one, being seen to respond positively to the appeal would have been greeted very warmly indeed in Byzantium and gone some way, therefore, to achieving Urban's own spiritual goal of uniting the churches and healing that great schism. Two, appealing to the West was standard practice for Byzantine emperors, and therefore Urban may indeed have felt compelled to respond positively to what was an entirely expected appeal from his friend. Three, the appeal also gave Urban the opportunity to act as the primary representative of Latin Western Christendom, and therefore assert his legitimacy over Clement III, the Antipope. And four, the tales of the Christian suffering in the East, whether in Anatolia or in the Holy Land, and whether well-founded or not, may have inspired in Urban a genuine empathy for the plight of the Christian brethren in the East. But Nick, as an esteemed academic and renowned expert in your field, you will be more than well aware that every historian's favourite word is... I think I would say self-reflection. That'll do. It's now time to consider the evidence against... So yeah, let's start there, actually. Nick, uh, why did you choose the term self-reflection? Uh, why do you think it's important for students of this period uh, to be cautious about attributing so-called main motivations to Urban II? Um, the reason I say that is that we know so little from Urban himself. His character is, is almost unknown entirely. And so we have to reach a verdict on what we think were his mo most likely motives based on what were his interests? What were the things he did? We have to infer his motives based on his actions and the broader context, which basically means that you have a whole range of different factors that you could pick from, and an argument could be made for any of them. And I think that this is a good exercise because it encourage, encourages you to think to yourself, which factor did I jump at? Which factor did I get? Oh, yeah, I'll have that one. That one fit. That, that one That one works. I'll, I'll choose that one. Because sometimes it's not the evidence that's making you do that. It's your own internal disposition. And I think that one of the things you have to constantly be asking yourself as a historian is when you pick the factor that you think is most important, what's that, what is the basis for that selection? Is it genuinely the primary evidence, which is the basis for historical research? Or is it, in fact, that it's the one that happens to chime with you and your own worldview or indeed the way in which society operates in the present day. And I think getting getting your mind into a med, into sort of the way in which medieval people think is really important and being reflective about that is very important. Absolutely. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so easy, isn't it, to fall into uh, selecting aims and motives for historical figures that actually just reflect your own priorities and affirm perhaps uh, even your own prejudices. But that being said, Let's look at the strength of the evidence that might suggest that coming to the aid of the Eastern Christians was a major motivator for Urban. I mean, how reliable is this evidence? Uh, how sure can we be that the picture that perhaps we're getting of the suffering in the East uh, is actually accurate? 
another question I've got is where is Urban getting his information from? Um, because of course, as much of this hinges on what is the precise nature of the relationship between the Byzantine and, and Catholic churches at this time? What exactly is going on in Anatolia in and amongst these various invasions? But it has to be said, where is Urban getting his information? Is his information coming purely from Alexius? Does he have other correspondence that we just don't know about? Does he speak to returning mercenaries? Lots of mercenaries, particularly from Norman, Italy and Sicily in Byzantine employ. Are they the ones filling him in? Is it returning pilgrims and what are their agendas? There's a lot of don't knows in all of, all of that. And so I think it is worth just flagging up the uncertainty in all of this and you know just how problematic some of the sources can be. Another um, curveball to throw into this equation is the fact that many of the more lurid descriptions of what Urban apparently claimed to be going on in Anatolia were written by authors after the First Crusade some of whom had been on the crusade themselves, and some of whom um, were drawing upon the experiences of those who had. And so that raises the question, we can't necessarily take the accounts of Urban's speech as being anything like what he actually said, because they are being informed by the experiences of those who went on crusade. And of course, it's not just based on their eyewitness experiences. We know very little about the eyewitness um, people, eyewitnesses who were drawn upon by these authors, or the traumas, or the experiences, or the beliefs that they carried into that, which may in turn have shaped their recollection of events, and therefore the way in which urban speech was presented. Yep, again, yeah, that's a great point. We have absolutely no idea whatsoever uh, what urban actually said at Clermont. Uh, we do have, though, some of his letters, uh, don't we? Uh, and Alexios and Constantinople don't tend to feature too prominently in them, do they? Uh, there are plenty of other... Uh, aims and ambitions that make more numerous appearances. Uh, but from the tiny handful of communications that we do have written by Urban, uh, would it be fair to say that mm, helping Alexios was at best a secondary concern? Sure. I mean, there's there's a whole range of possible motives. And Urban, as you rightly say, Urban mentions several of them, of which helping the Byzantines is only one. Is it because he wants to help Alexius? Possibly. It's difficult to know which thought was uppermost in his mind, because, again, we have so little that really reflects what what he was thinking or what was going on in his thought world at this time. Yep, true. OK, uh, let's move on to the delay that's often highlighted as another possible qualifier here. I mean, it doesn't seem very desperate, does he, Urban? Uh, he uh, received this appeal at Piacenza in March and yet didn't preach the crusade until Clermont in November. Uh, what was he doing all this time? Isn't, there, isn't this another clear indicator that perhaps the appeal and the situation in the East weren't exercising Urban that greatly? If we're following the line that this was his main motive, then there's no, no shortage of operational or administrative or networking type things, explanations of that he might have needed to talk to the people. He, he, he might have wanted to make sure that key nobles or, or clergy would be on his side and back his proposal. It could be that he had things that had to be dealt with immediately in order to um, facilitate the later launch of the crusade. Or perhaps it wasn't his main motive after all, which is another possibility. Well, yes, perhaps he had his own political motivations or his own religious motivations for calling the crusade, as we shall see in subsequent episodes. Um, 
Okay, Nick, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, before we finish? Are there any other points you want to make you think that would be useful for students of this topic? Another um, possibility is that it wasn't him launching the crusade at all. Now, this is this is something that isn't the traditional, the traditional scholarly view, but I think it is important to remind ourselves what we're talking about with the First Crusade. We're talking about a massive international mass movement possibly involving six figures worth of participants, which in total constitutes percentage points of Western Christendom's entire population. It's very hard for anyone, even those who wish to launch a mass movement, that they will be successful doing so. Gregory the Seventh tried in 1074 and failed. And so just because Urban at least encouraged or provoked a mass movement doesn't mean that that could have been so easily predicted at the time. One possibility, which is something that's I've been wondering for some time, I'm not confident enough to make me to verdict on this, but it's a possibility, is that there was already a growing movement to launch something that looked like a crusade to the Holy Land before Urban even launched Claremont. Urban just launched Claremont so he could get control of it. I can't prove that, but it's something I wonder about. But it is worth reflecting. I'm not sure anyone can be confident that they will genuinely launch a mass movement. It's mass movements emerge in a very organic, very complex way, and it's very hard to predict that they will do so. And so simply to say Urban launched the crusade and then a mass movement occurred, whatever this, whatever actually happened at the time, it's going to be a lot more complicated. <laughs> a lot more complicated indeed. So there you have it, the evidence against the notion that the appeal from the East was indeed Urban's main motivation. One, we simply have to be careful about nominating too confidently main motivations when the evidence we have is so partial. Two, we also need to be cautious about the evidence we do have of suffering in the East. Where is it coming from and how reliable is it? Three. Aiding Alexios and the Byzantine Empire doesn't appear to have been a prominent feature of Urban's letters. And four, that delay from Piacenza to Clermont, which might suggest that Urban was ruminating on how to take Alexios's appeal and transform it into something else entirely more suited to his own motivation. Right, that's it, dear listener. Nick, thank you so much indeed for that fascinating exploration of the role played by Alexios's appeal in Urban's decision to call the First Crusade. Uh, we'll see you next time in the next episode, which will explore any possible political motivations Urban may have had. But that's it for now. I've been Ken, and this is Teach Medieval.